0: We'll be reading the story of the rich young ruler. It seems to be sometimes in God's word that uh, the Lord teaches us by positive example and sometimes that He teaches us by negative example. And this is one of those passages that seems uh, an exact negative example of what not to do, not just because of the decision that the young man made, but also because of its placement. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, this passage shows up immediately after Jesus' command uh, to enter, to receive the kingdom of God like little children, and his declaration that those who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then we turn immediately to the sad story of one who did not enter it. That's what we find today in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18 and reading to verse 30. Before we read this word together, I'd ask that you join me together in prayer that we would seek God's blessing on our reading and study together today. Let's pray. O gracious Lord, this is your word, and we pray that you would show it to us and show us ourselves in it. Help us to see our own desires and much more help us to see our Savior, who calls us to leave all and to follow him and to find in him more than we could imagine. More than we need, and life everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Some weeks, uh, pastors have the luxury of space in the service for a smooth introduction. In other weeks, we make space for baptism. So I want to get right to the text today. Uh, This is a familiar text. As I mentioned, we see it in all of the Synoptic Gospels, the story of this young man who comes longing for life. And at its core, this is a passage that challenges us to ask where our desires are. It's a passage about competing allegiances, It raises the question of whether we really desire what God alone can give us or whether our hearts are set on the things that we think we can gain for ourselves. Three headings for this passage today. First, in verses 18 to 23, we're going to see the power of sin to blind us. And then, in verses 24 to 27, the power of God to save us. Finally, with the rest, the power of grace to fill us. The power of sin to blind us. The power of God to save us. The power of grace to fill us. We begin with with the blinding power of sin. Verse 18, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Eternal life. That's a good question. And it seems like it came from good intention, good, good motives universally in the other Gospels we find a a good picture of this good man who came to Jesus asking good questions. It's in Mark's Gospel that we find that this young man came and he knelt before Jesus. He came in humility before him. It's in Matthew's Gospel that we find that this man is, is perhaps a little anxious. It's this young man who is pressing the question, what do I still lack? And again, in all three it shows up as, a story immediately after Jesus' teaching about receiving the kingdom like a little child. And so it seems that he must have been listening to what Jesus was saying. seems that he must have been wondering how, how Jesus' message applied to him. It seems that he was seeking the one thing that this world had not yet been able to offer him. And all that teaches us something very important about this passage. And that is that this is a tragedy. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus was asked this question. In fact, we we see it already in Luke's Gospel back in chapter 10 in the passage that led up to the Good Samaritan. A lawyer there stood up to ask Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Other people were always asking Jesus this question, but typically it came from theological nitpickers who are trying to catch Jesus saying something controversial. And in those other places, we are just delighted when we watch Jesus and we watch him sort of parry and then thrust uh, and, and leave his opponents wounded. He leaves them empty-handed, though they were trying to accuse him. And we get a sort of delight out of the way that Jesus handles those who are trying to trap him, but not here. Now, when we read this passage, our hearts sink. Here is a man who came within a breath of the kingdom of God, and he did not enter. He's very much like the good seed that's sown on the soil that's full of thorns. And you can almost watch as he has this conversation with Jesus, you can almost watch all the good things of this life choke out the gospel in slow motion. You see it first in Jesus' challenge about the the, the law. This man came asking the question, what must be done? Literally, what good thing, having done, will I inherit the kingdom of God? He was looking for for some achievement, some merit that he could do, something he could tick off his list to say, oh yes, I've done that, I've accomplished that, and now I I can have the gift of God for me. I've earned it, you see. I've done what was required. He comes to Jesus asking what must be done, and Jesus is willing to meet him on that level. You want to talk about doing, let's talk about the commandments. You know them, right? Let's start with with just five of the Big Ten. No adultery, no murder, no no lying, no thieving. Honor your father and mother. How are we doing so far, he says. It should have been a softball. Every Presbyterian worth their salt knows how he should have answered the question, right? Of course, Westminster Larger Catechism 105 is, uh, is coming to mind. Uh, No man is able perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. That's how he should have answered. But he has the audacity to say, All these I've kept from my youth. Uh, For a man of his status, that is probably the answer that Jesus expected anyway. The text tells us he was a ruler. I don't know, maybe a synagogue leader, maybe a, a local judge. But he was the kind of person who whose entire life depended on maintaining his moral reputation. Not in a slimy sort of way, not in a hypocritical sort of way. He was an upstanding man. He was respected in Jewish society. He was expected to keep his nose clean and to do all the right things. And by the way, all the Pharisees and and their rabbis were going around telling people that actually it was possible to perfectly keep the law of God. You just had to define it in a sort of literalistic, outward way. Uh, sort of way a narrow sort of way that's why it was so revolutionary when Jesus uh, preached his sermon on the mountain he told people you have heard it said but I tell you and he began you, you remember there to, to take the gospel and to take God's law and to apply the law to the heart as well as to the hands to show us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but maybe this man had never heard that sermon maybe he thought he was okay he was in the clear as long as he hadn't actually strangled anybody to death. Maybe he thought he was doing all right. All these I have kept from my youth, he says. It reveals his ignorance, but I think it also reveals his investment. The years that he has paid into the, the tit-for-tat approach to grace. Right, quid pro quo. I'll pay in and then I'll get a reward as long as I've been current with my payments. I'm making this investment, and someday I expect to return. Ever since he was a child, he's labored to maintain his morality as a way to obtain God's favor. And the further he walked down that legalistic path, the harder it became to admit that his obedience was insufficient. The harder it became to turn around and walk in the other direction. You know, there is a phenomenon that uh, behavioral economists have identified that they call the sunk costs fallacy, right? It is the investment we continue to pay to try and recoup losses that are already gone that we know that we will never get back, but it's a way that we rationalize, a way that we try to, to avoid incurring that loss. And you know what it is, right? The sunk cost fallacy is that third trip to the all-you-can-eat buffet, not because you're hungry, but because you feel like you have not gotten your $15 worth yet. Right? You know you feel terrible later. You know you should have stopped after the first one, but you don't want to come out on the losing side of this equation, and so you just keep going. You just keep digging. The longer this man went in the direction of saying, I've done this, I should get that. I've paid in, I should get a reward. The longer he went, the harder it was to turn around. His problem was that he was so full of good behavior and outward morality that he was blind to the sin in his soul. Now the same was true with regard to his possessions. Jesus told him to sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now we know what to do with this passage, right? Right? Typically, when we encounter this, we spend most of our time trying to parse out whether this is a universal command, whether this applies to all Christians, or whether we can just keep on reading and pretend that it doesn't have anything to do with us. Because we don't want it to have anything to do with us. We don't want it to be an indictment against our materialism. We we feel safe as long as it's an indictment against his materialism. We want to believe that this man was one of those rare few who have to give up everything to follow Jesus, but the reality is that's not true. There is no rare few. There is no smaller subset of Christians who are called to give up everything. Jesus has already said in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 14, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any one of you, he says. Now that doesn't mean that we have to take a vow of poverty. It doesn't mean that we have to be destitute. The, the Scripture upholds the, the right to personal property, very often the value of personal property. Uh, this isn't a, a sort of a, a, a twist in the story to get us all to be paupers and beggars. But how seldom do we actually apply this to ourselves? Kent Hughes gives a good challenge in, in his commentary in this passage. He says, this should at least apply to the way that we make financial decisions. It ought to make us stop and consider, has there ever been a financial choice we decided not to make in order to be able to give more to the cause of Christ in the world? Has there ever been something we didn't buy? Has there ever been somewhere we didn't go? Has there ever been an investment we didn't make because God's kingdom needed some of our investment and some of our monetary goods? This should apply to us. But it doesn't mean that we have to take a vow of poverty. It does mean that we can't serve both God and mammon. And once we recognize that there is a a challenge between those two, it means that we have to be willing to forsake any master that takes the place of God's rule in our lives. That's what Jesus is getting at here. With this young man, he's getting at the idea of idolatry. He's pressing on his possessions, not because money is inherently evil, but he's pressing on them to show the idolatry that has taken the place of the God he ought to be serving. Notice in verse 20, when Jesus quotes the commands, that he quotes five commands from what we call the second table of the law. They're all about the the way that we interact with those who are around us. They're all about our love our neighbor and Jesus thus far in verse 20 strategically leaves out the first table of the law our love for God our responsibilities to him and then Jesus tells him you lack one thing and notice what Jesus does right he says you lack one thing and now I'll give you four commands sell and distribute and come and follow one thing he says it's not a sleight of hand. He, he's not trying to, to bait and switch. It actually is one thing, but it's, it's a sum total of all of those that amount to the one thing that he misses. The one thing that he lacks is trust in what God can provide for him and not what he thinks he can provide for himself. And that's what all of those are getting at. The one thing that he lacks is spiritual eyes to value heavenly treasure above earthly goods. The one thing he lacks is faith to forsake all and follow the Savior God has sent into the world. He comes with a good question, but despite his professed longing for the kingdom, he doesn't really desire what God says is best for him. He was so full of the things of the world that he didn't see how spiritually poor he was. The same thing holds true for all kinds of of other goods, all kinds of other affluence and riches in this life. This isn't just about big bank accounts. Because the same temptation to idolatry and possessions that this man fell into, we can fall into through all sorts of things. This could be about social capital or or your personal charisma or your dashing good looks in your early twenties. This could be about your intellectual ability. All kinds of riches. Leon Morris says, the affluent are always tempted to rely on earthly things, and they do not find it easy to cast themselves on the mercy of God. And that's what this young man lacked. Casting himself on the mercy of God. You see, there wasn't one thing he had to do to attain eternal life. There's a whole host of things that he had to give up. All the things he had to give up. That he was trusting in other than God's mercy in Christ. But you know, of course, that in the end he couldn't. Luke tells us that the ruler became sad. Mark says that he went away sad. He had just been told how to inherit eternal life. He came asking, that was his burden, that was his question. How do I find it? How do I get it? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, Here's what you need to do. Don't you think he should be happy? The burning question of his soul has been answered. Jesus tells him how to have life. But he could not reconcile the value of what Jesus was offering with what he would have to lose to get it. And so he did not enter the kingdom of God. He did not inherit eternal life. He went away sad. He went away sad because he loved money. Much more, he went away sad because sin had blinded him to the mercy that he really needed. That's what sin always does. It blinds us. It it causes us to evaluate the things of this life as more important, more urgent, more immediate than the things of the Spirit, the promises of God, more secure than the, the gifts and the treasures that we can't see yet. And sin blinds us to spiritual realities and to the promises that God is making to his children. That's what we see here. It's the power of sin to blind us. But thankfully, this passage also reveals the power of God to save us. Verse 24, Jesus said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, he is not, despite what you may have heard, he is not talking about coming into Jerusalem, bringing all your goods through a little narrow opening in the gate called, called the needle gate. He's not talking about that. He is literally talking about squeezing 1,300 pounds of dromedary through an opening the size of a sesame seed. His point is not that it's difficult, per se, for, uh, for rich people to squeeze their way into the kingdom. His point is really that it's impossible. And those who heard him say these things knew exactly what he meant. And in fact, for those who heard him say these things, it sounded like he was barring the doors of the kingdom to anyone at all, not just the rich. Because in those days, uh, most first century Jews viewed wealth as a symbol of God's favor. Right? Rich men were, were like Abraham. Rich men were like Uh, We're like Jacob returning to Canaan. and You remember the story there, and he's got herd after herd and flock after flock, and they're stretching out in front of him for miles under the direction of an army of servants, and they're going as as gifts to his brother that he can just give away because he's got so much. And the Lord has increased them, and they thought if you were an honest, God-fearing Jew, that's what the Lord would do. There were scoundrels who made their fortunes swindling people and cheating people, and we weren't talking about them, but if if riches were acquired, honestly, it was a universal symbol that God was pleased with you. That was the way they viewed things. And so, in their minds, Jesus is saying that the wealthy are going to find a hard time getting into the kingdom, and he might as well be telling them that the situation is hopeless for normal people and peasants like them. And you notice that Jesus agrees with them. Who then can be saved? Not not what rich person can be saved, but who. That is, who of anybody, who can be saved? And Jesus says, yeah, it's impossible, actually, with man. It's a human impossibility to enter into the kingdom of God. It cannot be done. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31. Jesus was asked about, The greatest commandment, you know the response. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. And in Jesus' conversation with this this young man, now in his his statement about camels and needles, he's, he's showing us, he's emphasizing that there is no mere man or woman, there is no saint on earth who can fulfill those great commandments. There's no one since the fall who can do what is necessary to obtain eternal life for themselves. It is a human impossibility. Who can be saved? It's impossible with man, Jesus says. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God has the power to do what we cannot do for ourselves. God has the power to take blind sinners and to lead them to himself. God has the power to save those who through sin are unable to save themselves. God has the power to send his son into the world to fulfill the law's demands, to fulfill the commandments perfectly, flawlessly, to send him to die a sinner's death in our place so that we can receive by faith a gift that we could never gain for ourselves. Forgiveness and reconciliation, and eternal life in Him. And that's how God's gift of salvation always works. That's how He gives it to all of His children, to the rich, to the poor, to the beautiful, to the exceptional, to the ordinary, awkward Christians who are just trying to make their way following Jesus. It's the same way. It happens the same way for all of them. It comes through the power of God to make us trust his promises and to ask for the gift of life that we can't get for ourselves. That's why it was so important for this young man to walk away from his earthly possessions. And that's why, at some point in your Christian life, the Lord will call you to walk away from something, maybe someone maybe some addiction or maybe some sin or maybe some comfortable crutch that up until this point in your life you thought you would never be able to live without. God is in the business of destroying the idols that we put in our hearts in place of him. That's why it's so important that we leave those things that he says you must forsake this and follow Jesus. Because there is no hope over there. There is no life over there in that thing that you've put in my place. You must leave it and follow me instead. That's why it's so important. And by the grace of God, by his life-giving spirit, God has the power to give us the desire to do exactly that. Some of you were converted later in life as adults, and you know what it is, you remember what it is to live a life of sin, a life that we that we hear about when people give those testimonies, and we all sit back and we go, wow, isn't that amazing? It's amazing when God keeps children in Christian homes as well. But we look at those and we say, isn't that amazing? And, and some of you remember that. And maybe you remember the view from the other side that looked at the promise of Jesus and life and said, you want me to give up all this for what? Some, some message a, a preacher is talking about, something I've never even seen, you want me to, to give it all up for that? Where did the desire come from to leave that view of Christ in the gospel and come into the one where you say, he's worth more than all I could ever give up? Well, it comes from God's power to save us. He's the one who does it. By his life-giving spirit, he opens our eyes to see that our greatest need is the grace that he can give us. When he does that, he brings us into his kingdom. He brings us into salvation. Well, the last thing we find in this passage with the remaining verses is the power of grace to fill us. There's this puzzling statement of Peter in verse 28, right? And if you're just reading Luke's gospel, you might not get the gist of, of what he's saying, what he's getting at. It might just seem like a typically Peter thing to do, right? Here's. Here's a a pregnant pause. Here's an awkward silence. And so Peter, he's always, he's just sort of interjecting. He's giving his own view of things. Maybe that's what's happening. But but Matthew 19 fills out the rest of the statement. In Matthew's account, he gives us the rest. and, And Peter says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And suddenly we recognize that it's an anxiety it's a fear almost. It's a it's a it's a puzzlement in Peter's mind. He's just heard Jesus making promises to somebody else. If you give up everything, you will have life. Sell all that you have and come and follow me, you'll have life. And Peter looks at himself and he looks at the other eleven. And he says, Well that's what we did. Well what what about us? Does that hold true for us as well? What will happen for us at the end? Will we have life, what will we have then as well? There are a lot of ways, I think, that Jesus could have answered Peter's question. He could have rebuked Peter for his little faith, right? right. He could have turned and, 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 and been disappointed that Peter was worrying about rewards while somebody else's soul was on the line. He could have turned into a teachable moment he could have preached a sermon on any number of, of useful doctrines at that point but he doesn't he simply turns to peter and he offers assurance not to him but to all the disciples you know the language that he uses he's talking to all of us as well he comforts his people with the knowledge as as dale ralph davis puts it the knowledge that commitment to jesus will never leave god's people impoverished He tells them that there's nothing that disciples could give up in this life that even begins to compare with the value of becoming a child of God. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time, in the age to come, eternal life. We could do the calculations, right? We could try to figure out what are the, the details that fill in this picture, especially of what we'll receive in this time. Right? And, and we, can, we can think of perhaps what Jesus might be talking about. Maybe, maybe he means for those who are forced out of their homes for faith in him, they'll be received into Christian hospitality. They'll be received into other homes. Maybe for those who have left relationships or families, maybe they'll be received by brothers and sisters and there will be a repayment of these things. And we can do all the calculations. There are options we consider to, to fill out what Jesus might mean. But by far, the most precious thing we gain by following Jesus is the joy of knowing Jesus. That was Paul's witness in a jail cell on his way to be executed in Rome. He wrote to the Philippians and he said, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the witness of our brothers and sisters today in Vietnam. Our brothers and sisters in, in Cambodia or in Burkina Faso or in Colombia. Our brothers and sisters in Bangladesh, those that we pray for, those that we don't know yet, but those that realize that when they follow Jesus, it might mean that they have to give up their jobs, or their homes, or their children, their very lives. And they witness that it's all worth it, for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ the Lord. That's still the testimony of every Christian who follows Jesus away from the idols of sin and self and worldly security. Our testimony is that despite what we may be called to give up, God's riches in Christ are more than able to make up the difference. Our testimony is that the Lord gives life in Christ that we could never gain for ourselves. And if you, like Peter, sometimes wonder if that's true, there's only one way to know, and that is to follow him. Would you join me in prayer?